You see that stupid number in your checking account? It's called wasted potential. Now I'm gonna let you in on a little secret about something called the portfolio. And it's not gonna build itself, okay? Without you, it's just another number on a screen. Like a jungle full of bananas and no ape in sight. Well, I'm gonna take you to that jungle. Because in the case of these portfolios, it is gonna be up to each and every one of you. My speculative degenerates, my apes, and of course my apets, who will not hit the cell until your account either flies or flops and dies! Welcome back to Always Picking Electric Securities. It's your host, Alex Marku. Today is February 25th, 2022. And on today's episode, I'm going to be talking about the tensions that are brewing right now between Russia and Ukraine, and just my two cents on what's going on. Then, on a way lighter note, I'll be re-pivoting back to this actual portfolio because I have a play for next week to buy my first dividend stock for this portfolio. Then after that, in my personal investing segment today, I'm going to be talking about an idea I have to buy one share of Google and my reasoning for it. And then I'll share a fun little story that honestly just happened this past week with me because I made a small little bet with someone on Wall Street Bets. And let's just say long story short, I'll be buying monthly spy calls for the rest of the year. Then after the investing segment, I'll dive into how I did with my sports bet slips for the past week. And honestly, it wasn't too hot, so I'm going to be trying to reevaluate the way I make my bet slips. But don't worry, that doesn't mean I'm betting any less this upcoming week. And then the teaching segment is making a reappearance again for this episode because I figured tax season is upon us, so why not dive into everything or at least a little bit of the things I know for taxes. Financial Disclaimer Since this is an investing podcast, I will give out the disclaimer that everything I do on this podcast has the potential to reach 100% loss. Welcome back, my apes and retail investors. On today's investing segment, my plan is to dive into the Ukrainian tensions with Russia and really what's at stake because I dove into it and there's something really significantly at stake right here that's not being talked about on the news. Then to jump into something a little bit lighter, I'll talk about the first dividend stock I want to buy for this portfolio, which is going to be Coca-Cola. And then after that, I'm going to let you know a little bit more inside the mind of my degenerativeness, especially when it comes to my own stock picking choices. But that's going to be coming in the personal portion of this investing segment. Now before I dive into all of that, let me give you an update on my apes portfolio and where it's sitting at because my bet slips really didn't hit this week and it really shows. So my securities department is valued at $526.94. The cryptocurrency segment is valued at $184.88. My gambling account took a little bit of a hit and it dropped to $504.02 and this puts the total portfolio valuation at $1,215.84. So now I'm down 6.5% whereas last time I talked to you I was up about 5%. All right. So now for something a little bit more serious than just trading stock or trying to make money by making a couple bet slips here and there. Because Russia is seriously considering invading Ukraine because they don't want Ukraine to join the European Union. 
Now, I'm not going to be sitting up here and telling you that I know a lot about geopolitics and foreign relations, which is why I looked up an article on BBC to get any kind of scope on this. And when I said BBC, I'm not talking about Big Black Cock. I'm talking about the British Broadcasting Corporation. They're essentially like a news source, but they're trusted a little bit more globally because, well, they also say some of the shady shit that happens around the world. They don't just sugarcoat shit. Regardless, you don't really have to tune into the BBC. You can just tune into any news network because they're probably saying it right now. And what they're saying is that Russia has invaded Ukraine. Now, from the article I read, it stated that in the capital of Ukraine, which I believe is pronounced Kyiv, there were gunshots fired and tanks filmed entering the capital. So Russian tanks and gunshots firing off were heard in the capital of Ukraine. Not only that, but Vladimir Putin has made it clear, publicly and on television, what his stance is with Ukraine. He even threatened any country that threatens to interfere. Now, what can he possibly threaten other countries with aside from war? Well, I'll give you what I possibly think, but the last bit of information I got from this article, which really makes me a little bit sad, is that the European Union won't be sending any troops to Ukraine. Instead, what they said they're going to be doing is putting on harsh sanctions for Russia. So from my understanding, if I'm reading between the fine lines, the European Union is essentially saying, Russia, please stop doing what you're doing to Ukraine, but we're really not going to do anything to stop you, aside from maybe slapping you on the wrist with these harsh sanctions. So what would a sanction be? Maybe more tax on certain imports or exports. Now you can feel free to tune out if you've heard this history lesson before, but what I did after reading this BBC article is I initially remembered that there was a huge pipeline that ran through Ukraine from Russia. Now I didn't know the actual name of the pipeline, so my next Google search was what's the major pipeline that runs from Russia through Ukraine? And the next thing I got was, well, a Wikipedia search, and this map is actually pretty scary if you try and start to break it down, because it can really show you how much power Russia really has in gas transportation to the European Union. And the reason is because Ukraine has a natural gas system where it's a complex transmission pipeline that imports and transits gas. And guess what? It's one of the largest transmission systems in the world. So it's not like, oh, it's the fifth one. It's the largest one in the world. And looking at the map right now, it shows a clear indication that Russia has one very interesting pipeline running all the way to the Middle Eastern areas. And guess what? From that Middle Eastern pipeline, it cuts off into multiple other ones. Guess where they all seemingly run through? Ukraine. Well, except for one. There's one that runs on the south side, through the Black Sea, and right around Turkey. So if you have good relations with Turkey, then you can get their gas from their pipeline. And if you're not really on the best of terms with Turkey, then I'm guessing your next best bet is that you're going to be getting your gas provided from yours truly, Ukraine. And what the European Union right now is doing is placing harsh sanctions on Russia instead of sending in troops to protect this very valuable gas line, at least this transportation of gas. So, 
I don't know much about geopolitics or foreign policy, but it's honestly kind of scary to see how much control Russia truly has with the gas transportation to the European Union through Ukraine. And I pray for anyone right now that's in Ukraine and has to battle for their own land. Because I saw news stories right now of how people are migrating from Ukraine to Poland. And honestly, it's a little bit of a scary sight, especially to see now in modern times. But, unfortunately, the ugly parts of the world are starting to show its face every single day more clearly as time goes on. And the last little point I'll talk about before I move on from such a dense topic is that you better not be surprised if gas prices start going through the roof anytime soon if this Ukrainian and Russian tension doesn't resolve soon. If this turns on into a full-on war, or even worse, Russia overtakes all of Ukraine, then we're looking at something really serious. We could possibly be looking at the next modern war, but I don't want to be a bear about it, so I'm going to hope that maybe Russia and Ukraine can talk about it and have some kind of diplomatic chat. It's just right now, things don't look so hot. But let's move on to something a little bit more light, and that's Coca-Cola. Because for this Apes portfolio, I want to add the first paying dividend stock to it. And that's going to be Coca-Cola. So what do I mean by this? Well, every single position I have in my portfolio so far does not pay a dividend. So that means I'm solely relying on it to grow me value by just gaining stock price. Well, that's not the only way you can make money in the stock market. You can also invest in more reliable companies that are already big, that aren't going to have these huge price movements, but you're going to be relying on their dividend payments. And I'm going to be introducing the first one to this portfolio, and it's going to be Coca-Cola, since that's one of the best and well-known dividend companies out there to invest in for the long haul. If you don't want to trust me, well trust Warren Buffett because I'm about to break down one of his best investments ever, and it features Coca-Cola. And before I dive into a little story of Warren Buffett and his Coca-Cola purchase, let me dive into some basics of Coca-Cola, just so you know why I'm investing in it, and how you can get in on the action if you want to get the first dividend payment as soon as possible. Because Coca-Cola is, well if you don't know, they're a beverage company, but they also do all this advertisements and they probably buy out other companies as part of their subsidiaries. But without going too much in every little detail of what they do or even the balance sheet or income statement of them because they're a very well secured company, they're about a $60 stock and they haven't missed a dividend payment in a running consecutive quarter in God knows how long. I actually don't know the stat and I'm not sure if they ever missed it in their lifetime. Regardless, it's pretty safe to say that from 1980s since then, they've paid a consecutive running dividend every single quarter. So what this means is that they had enough money to pay a dividend every single quarter to their shareholders. This is the kind of investing that Warren Buffett views as value investing. Because if you're able to snag a company like Coca-Cola at such a low price that's able to always pay their shareholders a small fraction back, then that's a pretty good investment. And I'm about to dive into a little history of Coca-Cola stock-wise and Warren Buffett-wise just to show you how much money this fool makes on one goddamn stock alone. So for starters, Coca-Cola was born in Georgia, Atlanta in January of 1892. And then since 1919, 
Coca-Cola has had 12 stock splits. So what this means is if you held a share, just one share, and it's most likely your great-great-grandpa that would have held this share, not you, but if they held one share of Coca-Cola from 1892 to 1919, then that one share via all of these stock splits would now be worth 9,216 shares. So this means that one share would have turned to four shares at one point, and then those four shares would have turned to 36, let's say, and then maybe you turn those 36 to 100 something. And this is all by holding the one share and Coca-Cola continuing to distribute a stock split. Now, that's a whole lot of if you would have done this, which no one in their right mind would have even had the chance to do that. Because if you bought Coca-Cola in 1920, you probably would have had someone sell it during the Great Depression, or they would have sold it during World War II. So you see, there's no way unless a whole generation of a family line held all the way through, then they are truly diamond hands. And speaking of diamond hands, let me reintroduce you back to Warren Buffett and at least what I think is one of his best investments ever, and it's definitely the one that most people talk about, especially when they mention him. Because if you think about Warren Buffett and one stock he really likes, it's Coca-Cola. And after doing just a tiny bit of extra digging around, I found out why this guy truly loves Coca-Cola. And I found out it's because during the 87 market crash, one of Warren Buffett's best investments was buying a billion, yes, with a B, one billion dollars worth of Coca-Cola. Now your boy did some pretty simple math and just used Yahoo Finance to see what the prices of Coca-Cola were during this whole market crash scene. And what I found was that during the month of September 30th, 1987, the lowest the stock price for Coca-Cola ever got was about $1.80. Now, for all of November of 1987, the lowest it was was about $2.25. And the stock market crash of 87 happened in October. So I chose the two months that pretty much sandwiched this and just gave an estimate to get an average of $2 per share just as an estimated cost basis so you can get a rough idea of how many shares Warren Buffett can own by spending a billion dollars. And if the markets were super nice to him and gave him absolutely 0% fee for spending a billion dollars at an average share price of $2 back then, he would have 500 million shares. Now because it's unrealistic to think that trading back then had 0% fees because that's not how it was, let's attach a really hefty fee and I'm talking about 80% so let's say instead of the 500 million shares Warren Buffett was unfortunately only able to acquire a hundred million shares of coca-cola during the 1987 market crash well are you ready for some more fun numbers because since Warren Buffett bought his stake in coca-cola He's always big on touting that he doesn't sell and he has never sold a share of Coca-Cola. Now maybe I'm a little outdated and he possibly could have sold because I don't really keep up with his investments. So if someone fact checks me and finds out that I'm wrong and he did sell some, then cool, my math probably doesn't hold up. But assuming that this fool hasn't sold and he has touted that plenty of times, Coca-Cola has had four two to one stock splits since his initial investment of the 87 crash. They had one two to one stock split in May of 1990, 
they had a second 2 to 1 stock split in May of 1992, and then it seems like a trend of May. In May of 1996, they had another 2 to 1 stock split, and then because Coca-Cola already is a huge sized company, it took them all the way until July of 2012 to do another 2 to 1 stock split. Now the only reason I told you all of the stock splits, which were all 2 to 1, and the years it occurred, is because they were clearly after the 87 crash. So on my lowball estimate, if Warren Buffett managed to hold on to his 100 million shares of Coca-Cola, after the first stock split, he would have 200 million. After the second stock split, he would have 400 million. Guess what happens after the third one in 1996? He has 800 million shares of Coca-Cola. And it's not until July of 2012 that yours truly, Warren Buffett, has 1.6 billion shares of Coca-Cola. And he was always a huge proponent of claiming that he hadn't sold a single share of Coke. So as long as he was true to his word and he never sold a single share of Coca-Cola before July 2012, then guess what? This fool at one point had 1.6 billion shares off of just 100 million shares previously owned. That's insane. You ready for something even more insane? And it actually is a little bit saddening to my heart? Because Coca-Cola, like I said, pays a quarterly dividend. That means once every three months, they pay you at least a certain amount for every single share you hold. How much do they pay you exactly? Well, the price of their dividend has actually been steadily increasing for a long time. And the last dividend they actually paid out was 42 cents. So are you ready for me to do a little bit of lowball estimate math for you? 1.6 billion shares times 42 cents, assuming Mr. Warren Buffett is still holding on to his shares is $672 million. So, if Warren Buffett hasn't sold a single share of Coca-Cola yet, without the reinvestments of the dividends already, okay, which I'll get into at some other point in an episode, he earns $672 million worth of dividends. And that's the lowball estimate, because remember how earlier I divided his shares by 5? From 500 million to get to 100 million? If we're going highball estimates, this fool makes $3.36 billion every single quarter, every single 3 months, for just initially investing $1 billion in Coca-Cola. That's insane if you ask me. And because I want to get this podcast in on this Coca-Cola action, I'm going to let you in on a little secret. Coca-Cola declared February 17th, which was last week on Thursday, that they're going to be declaring a dividend on March 14th and they're going to be paying it April 1st. So what this means is that if you have one share of Coca-Cola on March 14th, So this means the trade has to be settled in your broker on March 14th, then that means you will qualify for the dividend payment on April 1st. So here's what my plan is, ladies and gentlemen, and all you apes, is it's going to be to buy one share of Coca-Cola before March 14th. 
Now I'm probably going to just be buying it next week just to make things simple. And I won't necessarily pick a specific day, but what I will say is I'm going to pick a theme. So I'm going to be buying my one share of Coca-Cola on a day that it is in the red. So this means that if I wake up on Monday and Coca-Cola is in the green and it stays in the green for the whole day, I'm not going to buy it. But if the next day it opens in the red, then I'll buy it. And it might not make 100% sense because I have no other rules attached to it, but that's just what I'm going to do, and I'll let you know what the cost basis is on the next episode. The plan is going to be clearly not to sell this at all, because I want to start collecting on this dividend. But I've always been curious on a personal stance, and bear with me here if you don't necessarily get what I'm saying. But I've always thought, why don't people just put 10 grand, okay, and hear me out, 10 grand into Coca-Cola on, let's say, March 11th because you need to wait for your broker about two days to settle a trade and you want the trade to be settled to receive this dividend. Why don't people put 10K into Coca-Cola two days before this ex-dividend date and then on March 15th, the day after, they just sell all their shares worth? And your hope is that the market doesn't move drastically to significantly affect your 10k. Well, the market you're trusting yourself on is Coca-Cola's stock. So here's where I'm getting with this. Why would anyone do this? Because you would put $10,000 worth and you have, let's say, X amount of shares. You would actually receive the dividend on those X amount of shares to your broker even if you don't have the shares of Coca-Cola on payday, which is April 1st. Why? Because Coca-Cola told you that their record date is going to be March 14th. So as long as you're holding one share of Coca-Cola on March 14th, after the day is over, and that trade is actually a settled trade, so it's not like you bought it on March 14th with unsettled funds, then you qualify for the dividend. And here's where my 10k strategy comes in place. Let's say that you buy 10k worth of Coca-Cola three days prior, and then March 15th, you sell it, and let's say you lose $50 or you earn $50. So what? On April 1st, let's say you get a dividend payment of $500 worth because of the 10k you put in. And now I know I seem a little bit too excited, but that's because this is a real investing strategy that people do. And it's something that I've considered doing, but I haven't pulled the trigger on yet. Because there are tax implications to this, and later on in my teaching moment, I'll break down exactly what that implication might be. And now before I move over to all the losing bet slips that I picked, and my attempt to make it back, let me take you into my personal investing strategies. Because I have two that I'm going to be sharing with you today. I initially only had one in mind, but over the weekend I made a dumb bet with someone on Wall Street Bets. And I figure, why don't I dive into that play? Especially because the last two days, I've made some ridiculous unrealized gains so far. And for starters, let me tell you my Google stock idea. Because owning one stock of Google can be really pricey. As a matter of fact, up to 3k. So why would anyone do this? Well, it's just like investing in any other stock. You just think the company is going to be going up in the long run. And obviously everyone knows Google, and I think they definitely still have room to grow, especially if blockchain systems get integrated, because Google could play a huge part in that. 
which will only help their market cap grow. But aside from all of this, the real reason and some skin I want to put in the game to acquire at least one share of Google is because they announced a 20 to 1 stock split. So you know how I was talking about stock splits of Coca-Cola earlier and they were 2 to 1 and 3 to 1? That makes sense because they were a huge company and there's only so many stock splits a company can do before you just look way too big, at least from a shares point of view. Because let me reiterate the fact that a stock split or a stock reversal does not change anything fundamentally with a company. It just inversely affects the stock price and the share count. So if the share count goes up, stock price goes down. And if the share count goes down, stock price goes up. That's it. That's all stock splits and reversals do. But psychologically, they can play great numbers. Look at Tesla, for example. And not just that, but could you imagine looking at the price of Coca-Cola right now and multiplying it by 9,000? And then that's what the true price would have been had they never done a stock split? Yeah, it'd be really hard to imagine a company could survive if the price of their shares were that big. So that's why some companies do stock splits. And Google right now is doing a 20 to 1 stock split. And similarly to that ex-dividend date, if you own at least one settled trade of Google on July 1st or before it and you just hold it, then on July 15th, for every one share of Google you have, you're going to get 20. So if you have 10 shares, you now have 20 times 10, which is 200. But what's going to change is the stock price. Because let's say the price of Google is $3,000, the price will show at $140. Why do I think this is huge? Because think about it. If the price tag shows $140 on Robinhood and every single other brokerage account for that matter of fact, don't you think more retailers are going to have access to the Google stock itself? And don't you think some FOMO is going to happen where they're going to say to themselves psychologically, wow, $140 seems really cheap, even though nothing fundamentally changes from the market cap of that company. And I'm willing to place a bet, at least in the next five years, that if you buy one share of Google before the split, you're going to make a decent killing for yourself in the future. And this is a huge hypothetical, and it would take a large mountain to actually happen. But let's play the what if game because it's my favorite game. What if Google does a 20 to 1 stock split and then sometime in the future they reach a price point of $3,000? You know what that means? That hypothetically means if you would have bought one share before the stock split and held throughout until Google reaches $3,000 a share again, you would only have to sell one share and then you technically got 19 free shares of Google. Now keep in mind, it wasn't free because you initially purchased the actual investment and then you had the balls or the tits and diamond hands to hold it all the way to get to $3,000 again. So when I say free, that's what I mean by free. And now obviously I'm not expecting that to happen at all by any means. But I think it'd be really cool to buy one share of Google so then I could have 20 in the future because then what I'm going to do is I will start chipping away and selling at certain points. 
because if Google even reaches $300, let's say, then I could sell 10 shares and maybe make back my initial investment. That's how I'm going to start thinking about it. And it's definitely way too big of a play to have on this podcast, at least pre-split. Maybe post-split, I can eventually buy it if it eventually goes low enough. But I don't know. We'll see if we ever get there. From a personal standpoint, I know that sometime before July 1st, I'm going to be looking to buy one share of Google. I'll let you know when I kind of consider on pulling that trigger, or if I pull the trigger a certain week, I'll let you know for that week's episode. Okay, are you ready for a fun little story? It's not really one that serious, but honestly, the last two days, it's made me a killing in money, and I'm going to share it, but I'm going to highly recommend that you don't follow whatever the hell I just did. At least not unless you're willing to throw $500 to $1,000 out the window once a month. Because this next story I'm about to tell you all revolved around a stupid bet I made with someone on Wall Street Bets in a comment chain. And at the time, it was before I knew about how serious this Russian and Ukraine tension was because I saw a dumb meme on Reddit Monday morning for President's Day And underneath it, as just a little small joke, nothing even serious, I said that if Russia invades Ukraine, I'll start buying monthly spy calls because wartime prints calls. Now, I know that's super fucked up to say, and trust me, Reddit is just its own place out there, but some degenerate out there also said that he's gonna join me if this happens, and he left a little handshake emoji underneath, So I felt obligated to put a handshake emoji under his. Well, about five or six hours later, I had a reply under that message that said Russia just invaded Ukraine. So guess what? I felt obligated to follow through on this bet because I asked him, are you ready? And he said, let's do this. So, I mean, we already shook hands. So what do you want me to say? And knowing Wall Street bets for what kind of forum that is, I know that they would love some really dumb DD which is due diligence, attached to a thesis. And my thesis is that the S&P 500 will finish at a price point of $500 to $550 by the end of this year. Now, on the actual index itself, that would be $5,000 or $5,500. And my only reasoning and backing up for this number is the Rams winning the Super Bowl because I found a Super Bowl indicator that also tracks the S&P 500. And I'm not going to be diving too much into this due diligence, but what I will say is if you're curious, I'll post the link on my Twitter just so you can click it to see what the due diligence page says. And that's as far as I'll really talk about that bet on this podcast, because if I'm being honest with you, that's kind of just a dumb joke or a dumb thing I am having going on right now in reddit it's not really investment advice and i clearly state that in my due diligence letter if you can call it that that this is not financial advice just really fun lottery tickets and since this is a learning podcast i'm about to tell you the option play i made on thursday that already has gotten me almost a 200 percent return So Thursday morning, I woke up and I knew I had the money settled in my Fidelity account, so I had my due diligence ready to post on Reddit. All I had to do was buy my position because on Wall Street Bets, if you make a due diligence post, you need to also post your position using the Imgur link or whatever. 
So I did exactly that, but what I'll be getting into more here for the rest of the story is the actual options call contract I have. I'll be explaining my purpose and goal with it. And then if you do have 500 to 1000, and I'm really only going to be doing 500 for the first couple months, dollars to throw at least once a month in, then and only then would I say you should do this. By no means am I saying do this at all. But if you are curious, because I'm curious if this thesis will actually work out, which is why I'm willing to test it for a year. What I did on Thursday morning is I woke up at market time and I saw that the S&P 500 was down about one and a half percent. Well, I made myself some quick breakfast and got myself some coffee ready. And by the time seven or 7.30, somewhere in between then happened, I bought a call option. So what this means is I predicted the price of the S&P 500 was going to go up. So what I did is I bought a $430 spy call that's going to be expiring next month on March 25th. And I bought this $430 spy call when it was trading at about $415 or $418. So I was essentially banking on a $15 or $12 increase within a month. Well, there's a reason I'm telling you I bought this thing that early because the market for the S&P 500 opened up at minus one and a half percent. It finished the day at 1.2 something percent. And what was funny, not even funny, what was awesome is I gained $500 my first day on this bet. So because the SPY closed at about $428, yes, so $2 away from my bet, I already gained nearly 100%. And here's what the best part is. I have until March 25th to find out or figure out when I want to sell this call. So already day one, I'm doing amazing. Well, what happened today was even better because the SPY kept climbing and it went over a price of 430. I think it closed around 436, 437. Regardless, I'm already $7 in the money with this option. Now, unfortunately, I can't do this amazingness on this Apes podcast because it required me $500 of an initial investment. So I'm not going to be throwing around $500 or even advising you to do so. But in my specific case scenario, I'll tell you exactly how I think I timed it perfectly because that's all I really did is I timed this call option perfectly because prior to me buying this spy call, the S&P 500 fell for three straight days. So what this means is for three straight days, the S&P 500 closed in the red. Now, if you remember my little lesson on options and derivatives pricing, they use a Black and Scholes model to figure out all of the actual pricing for these options. I haven't figured all of that stuff out yet. But what I can tell you is the volatility that it took into account for the SPY to reach $430 when it was already crashing three straight days and the price was at 412 was very low. So that's why I was able to buy a contract for the SPY to reach a target of $430 in one month because probably according to this Black and Scholes model, it was going to be a really tough task. And it cost me, guess what, $5.60 a contract. 
So remember I said a contract is 100 shares. So that's where I'm getting that I spent $560 for this contract because I bought it for $5.60 a contract. Are you ready for some really dumb stuff that I still 100% don't understand about options trading? Which is kind of why I'm doing this because I know in a way if I spend $500 a month on a set play, I'm bound to learn from options trading this way. Now is it the best way to learn? Probably not. But if I can at least break even in this, then I won't see a loss. If I make a lot of money on this, then I'll have just extra money to throw for a down payment in my house. And worst case scenario, I'm going to lose about 6000 to 12000 and that's the max if I spent a K a month, which I won't, in a year. So honestly, at least for my risk tolerance, I don't view that as too much of a risky investment. And now for like the best part, I told you I bought this contract for $5.60. Well, it finished Friday's close at $15.75 a contract. So because my call contract is in the money by $7, because I believe the price is going to be $4.30, and the actual price right now is $4.37, I've already nearly gained 200% on my investment. And the actual S&P 500, since I actually bought it, has only gained about $10 worth of value. So if I put $500 worth into the S&P 500, I would have gained $10 in two days. Instead, because I bought an out-of-the-money call spy contract, I gained $1,000 off of $560. And I haven't sold. So I haven't technically gained everything, which is why I call it unrealized gains. And what my plan is, honestly, is to kind of hold and see if I can ride a wave. Because if this thing gets to 440 or anywhere near 450 or maybe has another $5 spike, that's a day I'm going to sell. When there's another huge spike for the SPY, that's when I'm probably going to sell this contract. Because the more volatility that's involved in this contract, the less it was actually accounted for by the Black and Scholes model. And I think that's where I'm getting these crazy gains. That and some stupid luck. But nonetheless, if you are curious about this method, because I will be following it every single month, what my plan is, is to eventually sell this contract for profit, because I have until March 25th to figure out if I want to sell it or exercise a call. And I'm not going to get into what an exercise call is right now, because I've never done that before. But what I can tell you is that if you don't plan on exercising an option, you better sell it before it expires. So for me, if you want to follow this dumb lottery bet system play I'm having, what you would do is you would sell this call at any point you want to, right? No one's holding your hand telling you, hey, sell it now, hey, hold on. You can sell it whenever you feel comfortable, 200% gain, 300, uh, a loss if you want because you don't want to lose any more, whatever you feel comfortable. The point of this monthly spy call stuff is so you don't have to try and time the market because my goal is to sell this contract and then what I'll be doing is waiting a month until I get to my expiration period, which would have been March 25th. Because under normal circumstances, I wouldn't have gained 200% after two days of buying an option. But because I got lucky, that's exactly what happened. So let's say I sell this contract on Monday. 
Well, how would you follow along with my play if you wanted to? Well, when March 25th comes, or that week of, what I'm going to be doing is I'm going to be looking at the next month's SPY contract, which will be April 29th, or it'll be the last Friday of every month, because that's what my thesis entitles. The simple rules I made to this trade so I don't try and time the market myself is that I'm going to be buying $500 worth of any out-of-the-money contract for the S&P 500 on the last Friday of the next month. So on March 20th or 25th during that week, I'll be looking for an April 29th call and one that costs about $5 something a contract. What I'll then be doing is I'll just buy it. And then I just wait out a month and try and sell it once it's in the profit. And I know it's obviously easier said than done, but that's just the thesis I have. So obviously I got lucky with the very first contract I bought and at some point I'm going to be selling it, but I'm not going to be buying the next April 29th contract until that week of March 25th. So whether you got all that or not, cool. But I hope one thing you can take away from it is if you didn't get it, don't follow into it blindly because honestly, this might have just been beginner's luck. I might find out the true value of options investing for the rest of the year. And apes, that's all I have for you today in the investing segment. All those stories, my next Coca-Cola play, and some Ukrainian and Russian tension that I really hope boils over soon. I really hope some diplomacy can be enacted and that things don't turn into the next world war. And I hope you all stay safe out there. And until next time, ape out. Welcome back, my friendly degenerates and anyone that just likes to listen to the sports gambling segment. Damn, did I really mess up my bet slips this week. I'll still recap them, but I'll do a quick recap since basically everything lost. Then after I do my sad recap, I'll be giving you the theme of the week, which is underdogs, because I'm going to try and make back some of that money I lost by rooting for a bunch of dogs. So let's get into the sad bit first, and let's root for a better week coming up. I'll first start off with the weekend bet slips that I had, which were for all of the soccer leagues. I wound up creating three separate parlays for the Bundesliga, La Liga, and Premier League, and I had a mixed-in round robin with it. Well, my Bundesliga parlay fell short because Bayern Munich had to cover a spread of minus 3.5, and unfortunately they only won 4-1. So by winning by 3, they weren't able to cover that spread. Borussia Dortmund was also able to win 6-0, and RB Leipzig won 5-1, but unfortunately Bayern Munich didn't help us out. Moving on to my La Liga parlay, I wound up having Real Betis, Barcelona, and Real Sociedad all as just Moneyline winners. And Barcelona and Real Betis were able to pull out their wins, but Real Sociedad unfortunately lost 2-0, so that bet slip also fell short. Then the last three-team parlay I had created in the soccer leagues was from the Premier League. And this one was a horrendous one, because I had Arsenal to win by minus 1.5, Manchester City to also win by minus 1.5, and and Chelsea's money line. Chelsea was the only team that was able to cover for me, whereas Arsenal won by just one, and Manchester City straight up lost. So they were favored by two goals and lost. Luckily, anyone that chose the money line against them 
got paid out big time. And it'd be unfair of me if all I gave you was just the bet slips, because there's an even bigger metric out there, and that's money. Because I wound up losing $50 while risking $72 on these bet slips. So clearly not a good soccer weekend. And speaking of not a good weekend, I'm going to put a little reminder to never place a singles bet, at least a large one, on an all-star game, pro bowl game, anything of that sort ever again. Because I realize how much it sucks to put money down on a game where the athletes are not competitive. Because I remember telling you I was going to choose a Team LeBron line of minus 5.5, but the line actually wound up shifting to minus 7. So by the time it was all said and done, I put $50 down on Team LeBron to win in an All-Star game by 7 points. That's a lot of points. And it turns out that Team LeBron only won by 4 or 5 points. So this bet slip was clearly out of the reach. But this is just my first example of where I can give you a line and by the time I actually bet it, it changes. I'll still stick true to my word, and don't get me wrong, if Team LeBron was able to win, things actually would have worked out better because the odds also changed to plus 100. So this meant a $50 bet would have won out $50, whereas before, a $50 bet would have won out only 45 or so. Regardless, it was a terrible weekend for betting, and I thought I could make it up with the UEFA picks, but I didn't see three ties coming. And I will say that when it comes to betting soccer, this is the one thing that actually kind of sucks about it. Because if you're choosing spreads, sometimes if you choose the plus side, it's nice when there's a tie because you were correct. But when you're choosing money lines, well you're screwed if you didn't choose the draw option. And for my UEFA round robin, I wound up having Chelsea to cover a spread of minus one and a half. Juventus to get a Moneyline win, Manchester United to get an upset win, and then Ajax to get a win since they were a favorite. Well unfortunately Juventus, Manchester United, and Ajax all wound up tying. So because I chose Moneylines, this means all of my bets lost, or at least those three. Chelsea was able to win 2-0, but this didn't matter because when you're doing a parlay system, you need at least two bets to win before you start collecting money. So in total, the last two bet slips I gave you, the UEFA round robin and my all-star game pick, I lost 80 total dollars on them. Luckily, I saw just a tiny little bit of green the other day, and that was with my welcome back to the NBA after the all-star game weekend. Because I chose all the favorites in the seven game slate. And from all seven favorite games, there were only two of them that didn't cover, and one of the games that pushed. So my bet slip for this wound up being the Nuggets to cover a spread of minus four and a half, the Warriors to cover minus nine, the Grizzlies minus two and a half, the Suns minus nine and a half, the Bulls minus four, the Celtics minus seven, and the Cavs minus seven and a half. So the Grizzlies and the Cavs straight up lost, so they weren't able to cover their spreads. However, the Bulls won by a score of exactly four points, and since their spread was minus four, this resulted in a push. This means all of your money kind of comes back and you didn't lose anything you risked. And for this total round robin bet slip, I wound up making $12.83. Now it doesn't seem that big considering I lost so much money over the last weekend. But I'm hopeful that this is just a change in the direction of the tide. 
And I'm waiting on one more bet slip to finish, but I'll be recapping that next week because I'll be launching the episode before these games are finished. And that bet slip is the three-team parlay I had created, which was of the Sixers, Suns, and Heat. And I wound up putting the bet slip in for the Sixers to cover a spread of minus 2.5, the Suns to cover a spread of minus 7, and the Heat to cover a spread of minus 6. I put $10 bet on that, so if this bet slip is able to hit, it'll at least make this first initial betting week of the new format for this podcast not look like it technically did so bad. But reality is, we all know the truth. And now that I've got the bad bet slips out of the way, let's hope I can change my luck with a couple underdog selections for this upcoming week. And I'll be keeping things a little bit light, but that doesn't mean I'm betting any less. And what I mean by that is I'm only going to be having, technically, four bet slips. But they're all going to be primarily underdog based. So for this upcoming weekend, let me dive straight into my soccer league's round robin bet slip, which is a lot of underdogs mixed in with only one line that's a minus line. So this means I only chose one of these lines that doesn't have plus odds implications. And I chose teams from the Premier League, La Liga, and the Bundesliga to compile together this round robin bet slip. From the Premier League, I chose some team called Brentford, because they're playing Newcastle. Also playing tomorrow is Brighton, and I chose them to be Aston Villa. And the last team I have picked from the Premier League, which is going to be playing on Sunday, so not tomorrow, is going to be West Ham, and that's because they're playing at home against the Wolves. The only reason I chose these three teams from the Premier League is because they were the favorites with plus money implications on their line while they're being at home. Now moving on to La Liga, I chose two teams from this slate, and that's Real Betis and Barcelona. Now Real Betis is going to be playing Sevilla. This is actually going to be a tough game, and Real Betis is the underdog in it. I'm just going to be sticking with my gut with them. And then Barcelona, they're the only team on this whole round robin slate that I'll be having that's a favorite, and it's not plus money implications on their line. The reason is because I just believe Barcelona is playing in really good form right now, and when Spain plays in good form, they're almost unbeatable. Then moving over to the Bundesliga, I chose three games that are going to be happening tomorrow. So you're not going to have to wait too much for Sunday's action to figure out if this bet slip is going to be doing great or not too great. Because tomorrow for the Bundesliga, I'm going to be choosing Köln to be first or whatever team they're playing. And then I'll also be choosing FC Mainz to beat Union Berlin. Then the final plus money implication side I'm picking isn't an underdog team, but I picked Bayern Munich to cover a spread of minus one and a half because it had plus money implications on that line. And that should total eight complete picks. So once again, I'll recap. From the Premier League, I have Brentford, Brighton, and West Ham. From La Liga, I have Real Betis and Barcelona. And then from the Bundesliga, I have FC Köln and FC Mainz, along with Bayern Munich to cover a spread of minus one and a half. That's what this round robin bet slip is, and I'm putting $2 risked for every parlay it creates. Now the reason I chose plus money lines for almost every single pick is because this way, now if I go less than 50% in my picks, I'm at least going to start making some money. 
because after having that last bad week, I need to seriously start considering what I want to do with my risk management, at least when I make bet slips, so I don't lose all of this money. Because as you can tell, this Apes portfolio so far is heavily driven by my bet slips. And to keep this whole plus money underdog theme thing going, I figure why stop after just the weekend? Because we've got basketball action on March 1st, 2nd, and 3rd, which is going to be Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday next week. And what my plan is with the NBA games for these three days is to bet the underdogs in every single one and make round robin slips for it. So let me list off the exact days and what my plan is for each one. Starting with Tuesday, March 1st, there's going to be six NBA games played. And what I'm going to be doing is making a round robin bet slip for all underdog money line picks. I'm going to put $2 risk for every parlay. And this means I'll be risking 30 total dollars. Now the next day, March 2nd, we're a little luckier because there's eight games. And I'll be following the same theme because let's say March 1st, the underdogs don't win and they so happen to win the next day. I just don't want to miss out. So on Wednesday, March 2nd, for the eight game slate, I'll be picking every single underdog. And then I'll be putting $2 again for every parlay it creates on that which will be a total risk amount of $56. Then the final betting day I want to have for this upcoming week is going to be March 3rd because there's seven games being played in the NBA then. And what I'll be doing is making a round robin bet again of all underdog picks and I'll be putting $2 risk for every parlay it creates, which will be $42 total. Now I've decided to give Friday a break from betting not just because I don't want to have a bet going on while I'm recording an episode, but because I already have $184 risked in just four bet slips. But don't think of it as just four bet slips because these are all round robin plays. Instead, you can think of it that for this upcoming week, I'm going to be having 29 underdog picks that I'll be rooting for with the exception of the Barcelona one. So let's hope this underdog themed week works out for us in the end and we're able to make back a portion of the money we lost last week. And if you decide to fade or follow my picks, I hope you find a way to make money if you're putting in the time to just listen to this part of the segment. Now last week, if you faded my picks, I can guarantee you, Hugh made an absolute killing. And until next time, all my friendly degenerates and listeners, ape out. Welcome back class, it's been a minute. Let me tell you, when I started this podcast, I had zero plan. And honestly, it shows. Because if I really had a plan, I would have had a teaching moment planned out every single time. But you see, at some point, I quickly ran into the problem of, oh shit, that's right, you're not a 70 year old that has all these life experiences and lessons to teach about. So right now, I'm still the student in life learning from the teacher while trying to be the teacher at the same time. So bear with me if I don't have teaching moments all of the time, but I will do my best to transform this teaching moment segment to something more of an informative teaching and even storytelling segment. So that means that if sometimes I've got certain stories that aren't necessarily quote unquote teaching material, 
I might reserve it for this segment in particular so I don't say it all in the investing segment or the sports gambling segment for that matter of fact. And then on days like today where I actually have a small lesson in plan, well, then I can come back to my teaching moments. And what my plan is to talk about today is just the little information I know about because everyone in the world gets really excited about tax season. And let me tell you from a personal standpoint, this year is going to be the first year that I'm actually going to sit down like the real nerd accountant I should technically be on paper and I'll actually do my own taxes. Let me tell you, I know it's going to be a bitch and a half. And I only know it's going to be a bitch and a half because of the situation I explained to you that I have five different brokerage accounts for trading stock and I have about three to five different crypto wallets where if I made transactional trades, I need to go back in time to figure out what they were, what cost basis it was, so I can figure out the tax implication on it. Welcome to modern day technology where taxes can be done for you, but you still need to put in the work to do it. Or you can pay someone to do it as a service fee. I call that monetization on the American public. But off of that point, let's get back into tax talk. Because the final date to file your taxes this year is going to be April 18th, 2022. And let me give you a little bit of words of wisdom, even though I am just a 24-year-old who's only filed taxes a handful of times. Do not wait for the last day, unless you're doing it on TurboTax. But even then, do not wait for the last day. At least start on April 17th. That way, if you run into a quick, oh, what's this question, you have time to ask it and you're not sweating because you literally have hours to finish this. So I hope I was able to stretch that point large and through. The final date to file your taxes this year is going to be April 18th, 2022. Obviously, I don't have to say the year, but I still will. Now, if you're curious on how you can do your taxes by yourself and actually fill out all of the IRS forms that you need to fill out, to complete a full tax return by hand, let's say, or even do it on your own computer, you can. You can actually log into the IRS government website and you can find their free fillable forms. Now, in order to apply for these free fillable forms, you need to create an account and you're going to need to have all of your tax information ready because what you're doing is you're just inputting the information from the forms onto this free fillable one. No shit. But at least this way, if you're curious or even just want to do your taxes on your own and use the actual IRS forms, you can do this and then you wouldn't pay that service fee to have your accountant or have your tax person do this for you. And once you would fill out all of these fillable forms, you can either send your taxes electronically for free most likely, or you could just print out those forms and mail it. Now, I'll let you know what my plan is will be to completely do all of my taxes electronically, then I'm going to print out the whole sheet, and then I'm going to debate if I want to pay someone to do the taxes for me, just to make sure that my first year of doing my taxes was completely correct. Because let me tell you right now, I'd rather pay about $50 to $100 to have someone double check my work. 
at least when it comes to doing my first tax return, because of all these stock trades I had for this past year, and trust me, I know it was a lot on a personal account, I definitely want to make sure that I had all my T's crossed and all my I's dotted from an actual accountant and professional. And don't get me wrong, I view myself like that already. But it's a whole nother beast to tackle if the IRS finds one small thing wrong in your tax return and they find out that you put it together on your own. Because then they can come out and get you and fine you. And the last thing I want is to pay all this extra and unnecessary money because I didn't double check my work. So what my plan will be is to completely do my taxes 100% on my own. And then I'll probably pay 50 or $75, which is what I did last year, to get my taxes done by a tax person. And then I'll just figure out, did I do everything that they did correctly and if I didn't I'll figure it out by trial and error that way for the next year's tax return I don't have to do this because I'll at least understand the parts I did wrong and the parts I didn't but if your tax returns are pretty simple and you don't do a whole lot of stock trading yet I highly just recommend using TurboTax I remember before I got into stock investing I did TurboTax for about three years and the most I think I ever paid well, if I did, because it's pretty much free, was about 20 or so dollars. The only time I actually wound up truly paying to use TurboTax is when I made about $8 in the last month of a specific year because of a certain stock transaction. Because of that stupid $8 stock transaction, TurboTax free no longer could complete my tax return. So I had to upgrade to a version that cost me about $85 just to figure out an $8 stupid trade I made. And it was somewhere around that moment where I realized, yo, you're studying this shit. Maybe it's time you start learning how to put together your own tax return. So I guess you can say I had my little adult moment then. And now just a couple years later, well, I'm getting ready to finally put it together. So how do you know it's officially tax season? Well, if you go pick up your mail one day and you actually have mail that's for you and it says something like it's a W-2 form or you open it up and you realize it's a whole lot of insurance information and it's got some numbers by it, most likely that's your signal. Also, if you trade stock, your broker is going to send you all of your trading information so that you can put together your tax return. Now you can wait until all of this comes in the mail, or if you want, you can go out and gather all of your tax information. Well, except for your W-2, typically you have to wait for that, but mine got mailed to me somewhere in January or February, so they're typically pretty good at giving you that quickly. And that's all of the tax forms I'm pretty much familiar with, but if you were to own property or your house, then you're probably gonna be dealing with some other tax forms and other information and papers that you also need to have ready and on hand. Unfortunately, I'm not even close to that rich yet, so I don't have to deal with that tax burden yet. But trust me, if I have to deal with a tax burden where I actually have my own home, is it really a burden? And after you collect all of your tax documents, you can do a couple things. You can do what I wanna do, which is the IRS free fillable forms, you can take all of your forms to a tax person and see what kind of service fees they provide, 
or you can just try and do it all on your own using certain service providers like TurboTax or any other possible provider out there. I know there's a couple, a hand few, but if you wanted to, you could literally just look at your own pamphlets and papers and see how far the free version gets you. But what I can tell you from personal experience is that at some point, if some tax information you input in the free version is too much for the free software, you'll eventually be charged the subscription, which just takes money out of your tax return if you get a return, or probably makes you pay more money if you owe a return. Now aside from knowing when the final tax filing date is, and where to get all of your tax information, or at least when to kind of wait for it, I think there's a couple other things that you should have in the back of your mind, at least when it comes to tax implications. Now, keep in mind, even though I went into accounting, I've only taken about one tax class, so my tax knowledge is actually very limited. But from taking that one class, and also dealing with just tax stuff in general like everyone else does, I can tell you that there's a couple things you can look out for, at least when it comes out for tax season. And the biggest thing you should figure out first before doing anything with taxes is to figure out what bracket you're in. Because our tax bracket in the US system is broken into seven brackets if you will. And let's say you power rank the very first tax bracket at 37%. Well, in the very top tax bracket, you only have to pay 37% on every dollar earned over 539900 so the tax bracket system tops off at 37% and it drops all the way down to 10%. So for 10% taxpayers, that would be on any kind of money earned over $10,275. So if you're not earning more than $10,275, at least for the year of 2022, then you don't owe any taxes. You're also probably struggling to live, to be honest, unless you're just a kid that's under a family, which in that case, your family has to deal with it, and there's all this child tax and all this stuff, yada, yada, yada. But it's important to understand at least what bracket you're expecting to fall in. This way, you at least have an indication for how much tax you're gonna pay. And one final note I'll make about the tax bracket system is just because you fall into one tax bracket system does not mean you're paying that full percent for all of your money earned. Let me give you a personal example. I believe on my W-2, I had about 42 or 43K earned with my new salary position last year. So what this means is I technically fall in the 22% tax bracket because the next bracket after that is 80K and trust me, even though I think 40k is a lot, I'm nowhere near 80. But if you were quick to think that I'm being charged 22% on all of the money I earned, I'd first tell you you're high out of your mind, because that's not true at all. I'm only being charged 22% tax on every single dollar I earned over $41,775. That's the only amount of money that gets taxed at 22%. Everything below it gets taxed at the other tax bracket, if that makes sense. So when people say that they're being taxed 37% because they're making millions, they're being bullshitters because they're not being taxed 37% on all of their money. They're being taxed the same tax bracket system just like everyone else would have been if they had the chance to get their asses to even make a million dollars. 
But the rich will complain about the rich stuff and not explain it to you just so you can get mad when it happens to you, you can explain it the same way the rich people did. Because let's be honest, how many times have you told people that you're paying this much tax when in reality, you're not paying that much tax for all of your income? It's because the rich have ingrained these complaints in you, so now you know the excuses to spew out. And it's also not your fault. It's not your fault the government believes in trickle-down economics or quantitative easing. I mean, how are you possibly going to control that? You can only vote these people in and out every four years. You don't actually have control in what they do. But I'm not going to get too political because, well, I'm just not trying to. But try to keep in mind, at least when it comes to tax law and tax policies, that politics have a huge play in it. Because when it comes to tax, there's only about 55 to 60%, I would say, at least that's what I learned in my class, that's actually foundational and set knowledge. So this means 60% of all of the tax law and all of just tax in general is actually set in stone and conceptual knowledge. The rest of the 40% is interpretation and constant changing. Why? Because whenever you get a new political party or a new partisan power, what you're going to have is you're going to have differing views on tax laws. So tax is constantly changing. So even though I gave you certain numbers for the 37% and 22% tax bracket I'm in, those are bound to change. And they change every single year. That's the 40% of the tax law that changes. The other part is actually set in stone. And that's the part that most tax people try and learn. Because the changes you can keep up with. The actual knowledge of it is really, really difficult. I can tell you that right now. And my last little bit of tax lesson, I guess, if you can call it that, is is going to be on short-term and long-term capital gains. Because after all, this is an investing podcast, so what service would I be doing if I didn't even talk about tax implications, at least when it comes to investing? And in order to understand short-term and long-term capital gains tax, you first must understand the definition and what qualifies for short-term and what qualifies for long-term. And it's actually really simple because your short-term capital gains tax is anything that is less than a year. So if you have a security that you bought and sold within a month, that's going to be taxed, any gain on it at least, at an ordinary tax rate. So this part I'm actually not 100% set on and I haven't looked up and I won't look up right now just for this next comment. But your short-term capital gains tax is taxed at your ordinary tax rate. And this is where I'm not 100% sure, but you can look it up real quick if you want to find out. And I will when it comes time to actually do my taxes. So the ordinary tax rate, I'm not certain if it's the very top percentage of the tax bracket, which would be 37%, and that would actually kind of suck, or if the ordinary tax rate is whatever your tax bracket is in. And I'm fairly certain, almost 80% certain, that's what it is. So that would mean my ordinary tax rate is 22%, since that's the tax bracket I fall under. But for investing purposes, I'm not 100% sure if they use your ordinary tax rate or if they have the ordinary tax rate set at 
because it can constantly change and it can just change president by president depending if the law gets passed that way. Regardless, if you were to hold a security for less than a year, then you're going to be taxed at an ordinary tax rate, whatever that is, if you need to find that out later. But if you hold a security for at least one year or longer and then you sell it, then those capital gains, they qualify for something called a long-term capital tax. And I'll tell you why it's more beneficial to have long-term capital gains tax. Because the most you can possibly get taxed on this rate is 20%. And the long-term capital gains tax is positioned almost just like a tax bracket, if you will. Because there's a bracket of 0%, 15% and 20% based on how much money you make on your long-term capital gains. So for example, if you made, let's say, $1,000 in long-term capital gains and you thought you had to pay the ordinary tax rate, the answer is wrong. You might qualify for paying 0%. Yes, zero. Because in this tax bracket for long-term capital gains tax, how it actually works is you actually qualify for 0% tax on long-term gains up to $41,675. So if you make about 41 k in long-term capital gains, you could have that tax at 0%. Now the second you start making between that amount and $459,750, you move up from 0% to 15%. That's 1.5. That's still not bad. That means you could still make up to $420,000 and get taxed at only 15%. And then if you make anything over the $459,750 or whatever the number is for that said year, you're taxed at 20%. So the max you can get taxed on long-term capital gains is 20%. Whereas the most you can get taxed on short-term capital gains is whatever your ordinary tax rate is or the very top percentage of the tax bracket if that's what the law entitles. I don't know 100% off the top of my head right now, and like I stated, I'm not gonna look it up right now. And the reason I don't wanna look it up right now is because I have a perfect example on why you should preserve your holdings for long-term capital gains tax if you can, and if the gain isn't something ridiculous, okay? Because imagine if you made something like 1,200% gain, well, are you going to hold it for a year and hope that it's still 1,200%? Because sometimes it's not. So sometimes you need to make that short-term capital gain just because you made such a large amount of money, and that's okay. But for those that are just typically investing and they don't get to see that 12,000 or 1,000% gain plus, what I would advise is doing the long-term capital gains. Because let me give you an example. Let's say you happen to make $1,000 off of a certain stock. Now, you made $1,000 off of this said stock. What would have happened if it was considered short-term versus long-term? Well, if it's considered short-term capital gains, the most you could be taxed at the worst case scenario, which would be the 37%, that would mean you only profit $630 of that. Now, if we're lucky and the tax laws are on our side and the ordinary tax rate is dependent upon what bracket we're in, then that would mean I personally will be charged about $220 of tax on this and I would only see about $780 of the $1,000. Here's where long-term capital gains can look amazing. 
because that $1,000 profit, as long as I didn't make over 41K or 42K, let's just round up, then that 1K profit is pure profit. It's going to be taxed at 0%. Now, let's say I managed to make a lot of 1Ks to the point where I now make between 42K and 460K. Well, it's going to be taxed at 15%. So for every $1,000, I'm making $850 in profit. And if I so happen to even be charged at the highest tax bracket position available, which is just 20%, I still get to see $800 profit from my one grand. So with my best case scenario in the short-term capital gains tax, it still doesn't beat the worst case scenario in the long-term capital gains tax. The only way you can actually quote unquote beat the system this way is if you were in the 10 or 12% tax bracket. And in order to fit in that, you would need to be making less than $10,275 a year, or at least for this year. So unless you're just an 18 year old kid living with your parents, you would really struggle if that was your situation and you're not trying to find life hacks on how to avoid capital gains tax, I can bet you that. But what I can tell you, and this next part is 100% not financial advice because I'm not trying to go to court with some stupid parents, is that if you turn 18, you can technically start investing. And if you wanna be even more realistic about it, you can even invest before you're 18, but you would need a parent guardian to technically have ownership of your account. So if you wanted to be a Warren Buffett and start investing at 13, you would need to ask your family to open up a joint brokerage account, and then that way when you turn 18, they could hand it over to you. And the reason I state clearly before this is that it's not financial advice is because for me personally, I think it's real life advice. I honestly wish I would have started when I was about 18 years or so. It's just I didn't know. I didn't start investing until about 21. So if I knew you could start earlier, trust me, I definitely would have. And let me be perfectly clear here, because the reason I would have is because I know that the most I made in a given year from Starbucks is about 12 grand. So if I would have known this whole trading schematic, don't you think I would have been trying to earn some money day trading or even swing trading? Because if I'm in the 10 or 12% tax bracket, I'm really not missing out that much by not holding on for a full year. Whereas if I'm in a 37% tax bracket, yeah, it'd be a lot smarter if I hold on to my positions for a year because I would technically make a margin difference of 15%. And now I'm not saying it's the smartest thing in the world to start investing at 18 years old, but what I am saying is from a tax implication point, if you can throw around $50 every here and there, or just allowance, or even money that you earn, and you clearly as a kid, and what I mean by as a kid is just 18 years to 21 even, and you're just living with the fam, and you make less than 10 k a year still because you're going to college and stuff like this, you can trade and try to potentially make some money. Because as long as you're not making over 10 k you're not going to be charged a ridiculous tax. And sometimes in the heat of the moment, that can just be some quick money that you can easily use. But once again, 
reiterating that it's not financial advice because I'm not trying to have some stupid kid's parents, you know, try and sue me in court because their kid's trying to be smarter than them. And my last little teaching moment I'll give for you on taxes is that selling things at a loss is not the end of the world. And I'll tell you why from a tax standpoint, it's actually okay. Because let's be real, we all have investments here and there where we pick and then we hold on and bag hold too long. Well, if something's down 70%, trust me, it can go down to 99% or 98 So if you want to avoid that, you can sell at a loss and just say, whatever, I'll never get into that stock again. Well, if you do that, from a tax standpoint, you technically can carry about $3,000 in losses to deduct from your gains. So this means that if in a given year, you lose, let's say $4,000, right? And you have 0% gain, well, you can deduct $3,000 from your taxes because of those losses. Now, that's the government's way of saying, here's for sucking at the stock market, but thanks for trying. Because we know that as soon as you start making a killing, you can pay us in taxes. Oh, and because you lost more than 3K, we'll let you carry forward all of that money to use that $1,000 extra surplus loss for next year's tax return. So technically, it's not the end of the world if you record some losses in your stock trading. Just try to keep it at a minimal level because you can only deduct up to 3,000 in losses every single year. I mean, all of your losses do carry forward. It's just, let's say you're losing $6,000 in stock every single year. Eventually, it's not going to pay out because you can only use and deduct 3000 each year. So now that's all of the tax information I have for you. And I know it's not some super well thought out and organized tax class that you just took, but I'm hoping that I was at least able to prepare you for this upcoming tax season and at least give you some kind of roadmap for the options you have. Because the tax world really isn't that scary. It's something that's easily figured out and it can be done for you for free. It's just then how could you possibly monetize on all of the people that are just trying to live their lives? And the simple answer is you can't. In today class, I hope that I made you slightly less ignorant in the tax world. It is definitely a huge beast and ocean to tackle out there, but one day I'll be able to help you with your tax planning so it can't be viewed as tax evasion. And if you've made it this far into the lesson, I just want to say thank you, love you, and until next time, ape out.
The only difference between tax planning and tax evasion is that one of them was planned for months ahead, while the other one was done on the spot. Loopholes, baby!